Well, good morning. If you have a copy of the scriptures, if you will turn with me to the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 11. 1 Corinthians chapter 11. If you've got a phone, uh, you can turn there in your phone as well. Continuing our series, Stuff Christians Ought to Know, as we address this question today that I hope is helpful for you is why do we take communion or why do we take, uh, you may have referred to this as the Lord's Supper, why do we do this very thing? And so if, uh, if you'll be willing and you're able, if you'll stand with me in honor of reading God's Word, 1 Corinthians 11, we're going to start in verse 23 and we're going to read down to verse 32, all right? So don't lock your knees this morning. Here we go. God's Word says, this is Paul, he says, for I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you, that on the night when Jesus was betrayed, that he took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Verse 25, in the same way, he also took the cup after supper and said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Verse 27. So then, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sin against the body and the blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself in this, in this way. Let him eat the bread and drink from the cup. For whoever eats and drinks without recognizing the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. Now listen to verse 30 here. This is why many of you are sick and ill among you, and many have fallen asleep, or many are, are dead, your Bible translation might say. For if we, improper, if, we were impro, if we goodness, we were properly judging ourselves, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned with the world. Let's pray. Father, thanks for your word. God, I pray on what is such an important topic for us to understand today, that your spirit would be among us. Father, I pray that this is not business as usual for your church, but that God, through open ears that we desperately need and soft hearts that we desperately need, that you would help us understand the magnitude and the importance of communion today. So God, I pray that your spirit would be among us, that you would teach us, mold us, and grow us into the likeness of Jesus because we gathered with your church. It's in your name we pray, amen. You may be seated. As I was thinking about this topic of communion and Lord's Supper today, just again, our question was simply this, why do we take communion? I couldn't help but think about this simple idea. Now track with me for just a moment. But the simple idea is this, is that food has powerful properties. Now, in regards to food, I think we would all agree with that. Food has powerful properties. Some of these are good. Some of those properties are not so good. A couple simple ones to explain this. At its most important, we all understand that food is a necessity for life. If you don't eat, you don't have nutrition to live. We need food. God created us that way. At the same time, food can also be incredibly satisfying. It can bring us happiness in certain moments. I wrote that down and, and I put here in my notes, with the Christmas season on the horizon in two months, y'all know where I'm about to find my happiness, right? Little Debbie Christmas tree cakes. I can't wait, I'm so excited. Christmas season starts November 1st, in case you didn't know. In moments of life when you find things are difficult, sorrowful, there's certain meals that can just bring us comfort. Food can bring comfort in those seasons. We've all had that, that plate of chicken, mashed potatoes, and green beans. What do we call that? Comfort food. Food has powerful properties. 
But in regard to this idea of communion, I was thinking about how food has the power to invoke memory for us. Let me explain that to us for just a a moment here. I've shared how around the holiday seasons, whenever I personally eat pumpkin pie, 100% of the time, I'm reminded of my grandma, Elsie. Because my grandma, all throughout my childhood, I can remember traveling to her house around Thanksgiving or Christmas, and she made the world's best pumpkin pie. And every time I eat it, I'm reminded of her. This one's a little bit different. I can remember... (laughs) When I would, oh my God, this is so gross, go to the grocery store still to this day and I see cans of Spam on the shelf, immediately my memory goes back to when I was a child and if my mom would go out of town to visit family, my dad would always go buy a few cans of Spam and he'd fry them up and we'd eat them there over the weekend. It's just as gross as it sounds. I don't even know what Spam is. I don't want to know. Or how any time I eat peanut butter fudge, 100% of the time, I'm reminded of a season in my life where I'd given my heart to Jesus, and I didn't have very many friends anymore. I spent many Fridays and Saturday nights at home with my mom on weekends, and she'd always make homemade peanut butter fudge. You see, food has this ability, this power innately in it, kind of, that we could say to invoke memory for us. And so today, we're looking at this meal that traces its story through the scriptures that we call the Lord's Supper or communion. And I really want us to lean into this question of why do we even take communion, right? We we consume this tiny piece of bread, this small cup of juice, and it's meant to point our hearts back to the gospel. It's meant to jog our memories back towards the gospel, That as we collectively do this as the local church, we're reminded of the death, burial, and the resurrection of Jesus, something that can get lost on us throughout the week, if we're honest, that this simple act is to help bring our memories back to what Jesus accomplished for us. So let me give you a little bit of background as to where the whole Lord's Supper thing came from, where communion came from. If you're a note taker, I'd write down some of these passages. You can read through them this week. We're going to step backwards into the book of Exodus, second book in your Bible. Again, not a lot of exhaustive details here, but where did communion, where did the Lord's Supper come from? In Exodus, there's a man named Moses. You've probably heard of him before. He was a Hebrew by birth, grew up in a place called Egypt where he had Pharaoh's daughter as his mother. You probably heard the story of the basket floating down the river. Moses, as he aged further in life, the Bible teaches us that he committed an act of murder against an Egyptian. You can read about that in Exodus chapter 2. He ends up fleeing Pharaoh's household, and into Exodus 3, he lands in a place called Midian, where he ended up marrying and having children. Fast forward to later in Exodus chapter 3, Moses is out shepherding the flocks of his father-in-law where he encounters a bush, you've probably heard this story before too, a bush that is on fire, but it's not consumed, is what the Bible says. Exodus 3 verse 2 says this, then the angel of the Lord appeared to Moses in a flame of fire within a bush, and Moses looked, and he saw that the bush was on fire, but it was not consumed. I always read that story, and I think, again, when Moses is writing this stuff down, he's kind of underplaying the gravity of this situation. I've never seen a pine tree on fire, and it didn't get consumed, right? Right? I mean, this is a pretty big deal. What was it? It was the presence of God in the bush, we read there in Exodus chapter 3, calling Moses to go back to Egypt, the place that he had fled, and demand 
that Pharaoh free the Jews, Moses' birth people, his heritage, free them from slavery. A series of events happen. Moses and his brother Aaron, they go back to Egypt. And after several attempts, Pharaoh refuses to release the Jews from slavery. And each time Pharaoh refused, God would send a different plague upon the Egyptian people. Things like darkness, lice, boils, rivers of blood, frogs. It was a pretty disgusting place during this time and season. But then the Bible says in Exodus chapter 11 that there was one final plague that God sent on Egypt in response to Pharaoh's uh, refusal to free the Jews. And it was the death of all firstborn males and all firstborn livestock. The Bible says in Exodus 11 verse 5, it says that every firstborn male in the land of Egypt will die. From the firstborn of Pharaoh who sits on his throne to the firstborn of the servant girl who is at the grindstones as well as every firstborn of the livestock. That's pretty tragic stuff. But the Bible says that God gave instructions to the Jews that to protect their children from death, the Jews would take the blood of their livestock and they would put it on their doorposts. So they would take this thing called hyssop, they would dip it into this, this jar of blood and on the sides of their doorposts they would put this blood and across the top they would put the blood on their doorposts. And in response to seeing the blood, I love this, God would pass over their house that night. I hope you all see that, that that is a perfect picture of Jesus. <laughs> that because the blood of Jesus has been applied to our accounts, God's wrath will pass over us for all eternity. I don't know about you. I think that's pretty good news. Look at Exodus chapter 12, verse 23. When the Lord passes through to strike Egypt and he sees the blood on the lintel and the two doorposts, listen, he will pass over the door and not let the destroyer into your houses to strike you. God will pass over because of the blood. Thus the name of a festival, of a meal that the Jews would then share moving forward called Passover was looking back to God passing over their homes. And every year they would celebrate this in memory of what God did and in memory of God's rescuing them from slavery. Now, fast forward to the New Testament, the book of Luke chapter 22. Jesus and his disciples are gathered in Luke 22 celebrating this Passover meal that all Jews would engage in. Right before Jesus' death, and what does Jesus do? He uses this meal as an opportunity to explain to his disciples that it was actually a picture of what he was about to do on the cross for the atonement of their sin, this Lord's Supper that we now call it, born out of this Passover meal. And it's a picture of God's grace to us. There's a little history for you now. When we think of the Lord's Supper, in the scripture, we, we're given what are known as ordinances. Everybody, everybody just say ordinance real quick, so I know you're tracking with me. Ordinance. All right, we're on the same page. So we're given two ordinances in the scripture. The Jews, again, they would have all of these festivals and meals that they celebrate. I don't think, I'm not positive, none of us in here are, are Jews, so we don't absor observe any of those festivals, any of those things. But we are given in the New Testament two ordinances that were commanded to practice by Jesus. Now, here's a little side note. These are not things we do to earn the favor of God. Because you take the Lord's Supper, God's not sitting up in heaven at the end of this service going, I'm so proud of you. Look at you. You're just, you're great. It's not what happens. These are not how we earn any kind of favor from God. Instead, we practice these ordinances because we've already been recipients of God's grace. 
And we do these things to remind ourselves of what Jesus has saved us from. The first ordinance is a thing called baptism. When people have given their lives to Jesus, we baptize them. Does baptism save them? Mm Mm-mm. It's a picture of the grace they've already received. We're going to talk about that more next week in Matthew chapter 28, where Jesus told us as his disciples to go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them. But the second ordinance that we're given here in the scriptures for us to practice, commanded to practice, is this ordinance of communion, the Lord's Supper. There's different names for it in the New Testament. If you're a note taker, I'd write these down and look at them later. Acts 2.46, the Lord's Supper is referred to as breaking bread. And 1 Corinthians 10, verse 16, this is called communion. Communion, if you didn't know this, the word simply means the, uh, sharing. It means we're just sharing something. We're sharing this meal together. In 1 Corinthians 10, verse 21, it's called the Lord's table. In some circles, maybe you grew up in the Catholic church and in Catholic circles. In the Catholic circles, this is called the Eucharist. That simply means giving thanks, if you were unaware of that. You can see that in uh, Mark 14, verse 23 where it's referred to as that. In Jude chapter 12, this is referred to as the love feast. But the whole point was the local church gathered together, observing this meal to remember what Jesus did. Now, we're going to go over some stuff that Paul talks about this in 1 Corinthians 11. I want us to talk about some instruction that he gives us, some, the significance of the Lord's Supper, some aspects of it that maybe we miss. And then we're going to close our service here in just a few minutes, and we're going to observe the Lord's Supper together. So two quick points for us today. Let's talk about the preparation for the Lord's Supper. Let me give us a little caveat here. I haven't said this part yet. Paul makes it clear. Jesus makes it clear. Lord's Supper, serious business. Super serious business for the local church. Here's the tendency. You're going to get one of these cups here in just a minute. You're you're going to see here on the front, by the way, there's going to be uh, two numbers. That's the expiration date. So it's the month and the year, by the way, if you see that. Some of these say 224, and you're going to think to yourself, this expired in February? Oh, my goodness. No, it's February 2024, by the way. All right? But you're going to get one of these cups, and you're going to get this. You're going to start peeling it open. And and I think the... um, the tendency in all of us is we, we see this and we start to open it and we think to ourselves, what's, what's the big deal? I've done this before. Does this really matter? We do it quick. We move on. We get out of here. We go to lunch. I want us to see here in 1 Corinthians 11 the frankly scary language that Paul uses surrounding the Lord's Supper. In the eyes of Jesus... This is an incredibly big deal. And if we believe, like Pastor Joe taught us last week, that this book is the power and authority for our lives, we'd be really wise to take heed to the instruction that we're receiving about something as simple as a small cup of juice and a small piece of bread. Like any meal, Paul reminds us this idea of preparation. It takes preparation to take the Lord's Supper It's not a physical preparation that we engage in. Instead, Paul tells us it's a spiritual preparation. Look at verse 27 of 1 Corinthians 11. He says, So then, whoever eats the bread and drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sin against the body and the blood of the Lord. I mean, that's some pretty strong language that Paul uses for us there. You'd be guilty of sin if we do this the wrong way. 
He goes on to tell us that if we do this in the wrong way, that we invite God's judgment into our lives. If we believe the Bible's true and we believe what God said is true, this should scare us a little bit. I don't want to do this wrong. Because Paul makes it very clear, this is serious business in the kingdom of God. Think about this for just a second. Here in Corinth, a little background of what Paul is writing to. They would gather for a large meal, and then the Lord's Supper would be a part of the meal that they would engage in. It was basically, uh, for lack of a better term, like a giant potluck almost. You know, obviously a Baptist church in some capacity, but they would gather for this giant potluck, and instead of being this time of like love, celebration, and remembrance of the gospel... Paul addresses the reality that this was a food and wine gorge fest in Corinth. He says in 1 Corinthians 11, starting in verse 21, that the wealthy would bring a whole bunch of food to this meal. They would eat all of it. Then the poor families would show up and there'd be no more food left. Now, nobody saw an issue with that. Paul says, you're not even functioning as the body of Christ. And then you're trying to gather and remember the gospel. What's wrong with you? Then he goes on in 1 Corinthians 11, verse 21, saying that, that these wealthier families would bring a whole bunch of wine with them. And instead of sharing it and then using it for the Lord's Supper portion, they would just come and they would just drink all of it down to the point that they were getting drunk in this church gathering and then trying to celebrate the Lord's Supper together. I mean, this is serious business. And Paul says, what is, what's happening in Corinth? What was supposed to be a time of celebration and remembering the gospel has turned into a gluttonous drinking party, and you're missing the point of the local church. You're missing the point of why you even take the Lord's Supper, and Paul says you're guilty of sin because of that. So we remind them in verse 28 of 1 Corinthians 11, how do we approach the Lord's Supper? Because we don't want to be like Corinth, and he calls out the sins of Corinth. What's he tell them? Let a person examine himself. In this way, let him eat the bread and drink from the cup. Before we take the Lord's Supper, Paul calls us to personal examination. For the Corinthians, asking why did I even show up to this meal in the first place? Was it to express gratitude for the gospel, which was the point of the Lord's Supper? Or was it to eat and get drunk in the fellowship of all of these other sinners too? But for you and I, that's not the situation for us, thank God. But Paul still encourages us to do a deep heart motive and faith check and ask ourselves when we approach something as simple as this juice and this small piece of bread, is there any sin in my life that would keep me from partaking in this moment with my church family? Examining ourselves personally and asking ourselves, is there any sin that I personally have not dealt with before I partake in this significant thing in the kingdom of God. Now, hear me real quick. Paul's not telling you and I that we have to come to the Lord's table completely clean. That's not what he's saying here. Think about this with me for just a moment. Remember when you were a child, maybe you were outside playing, you were out in the dirt, and you'd hear your mama come out on the front porch and she'd say, dinner's ready! And you're all dirty and you come walking in the house, what's the first thing your mom told you to do? Go wash up. Go wash up for dinner. That's not what Paul's telling us here. That's not what Paul is telling us here exactly because my Bible says in Romans chapter 7 that I'm in a continual battle against sin. And the reality is that even as a follower of Jesus, when I come to the Lord's table, I come dirty. But I don't come bearing my sin as a badge of honor. 
I come to the table of the Lord under the realization that Jesus took my place on a cross because of my sin. That Jesus died for me because of my sin. And because I'm a sinner, I need a savior. I love what Mark Dever says about this moment. He says that it's true that the Lord's Supper is only for sinners, but within that group, it's only for repentant sinners. We don't come to the table clean. We come to the table repentant. I read a story about a theologian named, a guy named John Duncan this week, and it was said back in the 1800s when they were doing communion at his church over in Scotland that a 16-year-old girl was sitting there in his church, and as that plate would come around and they were taking out these bread and juice elements, that when that plate came right to that little girl, that she actually turned her head and she pushed the plate away in a sign. She, she thought to herself, I'm guilty. I've got sin. I can't do this. And it's said in that moment in history that John Duncan walked over, put his hand on her shoulder, and he said to her, take it because it is for sinners. But it's for sinners that come to it with a heart of repentance. You say, Aaron, why is that a big deal? Because Paul gives us a warning here, friends, that I want us to take heed to. I don't think we take enough heed to this when we take the Lord's Supper. Paul says, if we come to the Lord's table in remembrance of the gospel and the corporate gathering of the church, and we come with unrepentant hearts, what is the big deal? What's the big deal? He tells us in verse, starting in 29, whoever eats and drinks without recognizing the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. Verse 30, that's why some people are sick. That's why some people are dead. Y'all, this is important stuff here. Why? Because Paul warns us, if you and I make the decision to mock the magnificent sacrifice of Jesus on the cross for the glory of God, that if we mock the Lord's Supper by coming with an unrepentant heart, that we have invited God's judgment upon us. I want you to think about that. If we mock God and we mock what Jesus did because we approach this and say, my sin is my sin and I don't care what you have to say about it, Lord. I'm still gonna do this because this is not a big deal. It's just juice, it's just bread. Who actually cares? Paul says, you better watch out. Paul says, you better watch out because if you claim Jesus and you mock Jesus, you better beware because our God will not be mocked. And he said, there's some of y'all in Corinth that are sick and dying because God will only let his kids act up so long before he'll take his kids out. This is serious business in the kingdom of God. It's not just bread and juice. We are wholly identifying with the gospel. Here's the second one. We talked about the, pre the preparation, now the process. Look at verse 23. Paul says, For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you, that on the night when Jesus was betrayed, he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Paul's quoting these events that occurred in Luke chapter 22, quoting the words of Jesus. There's so much going on in this passage. We're just going to walk through these really quick. They're celebrating the Passover there in Luke 22. Paul, he, instead, he zooms in now for us on this idea of the Lord's Supper. And he says that first, what Jesus did is he took bread and he broke it. If you go back to Exodus 12, verse 8, you would see that the Passover bread was what was known as unleavened bread, meaning that it didn't have yeast inside of it. It wasn't a big fluffy loaf like you would get at Walmart. It was like a real flat loaf, almost like a, a cracker, we could describe it. By the way, do we know why that was? Exodus chapter 12, verse 39 said that the Israelites had to flee Egypt so fast and they brought food for their journey that they didn't have time to let the bread rise with the yeast. So they just had to cook it flat the way that it was. But that was a picture for us of Jesus. 
Because throughout the scripture, we see that this idea of yeast, which is what causes bread to rise, is often a picture of sin and corruption in someone's life. You can read about that in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 when Paul uses that metaphor. So when Jesus, Luke 22, again here in 1 Corinthians 11, takes unleavened bread, it's bread without yeast means it's bread that symbolically has no sin or corruption in it. What's that a picture of? Even all the way back in Exodus 12, a sinless Savior named Jesus. Did you all know Jesus lived the life you couldn't live and died the death you couldn't die to give you the eternity that you do not deserve? That's what this, this, this bread is a picture of, that Jesus was the perfect sacrifice. And then what does the Bible say? Jesus takes unleavened bread, he raises it up, a posture of Jewish prayer, and he breaks it. The bread was a picture of his sinless body, and then what happens to it? He breaks it. Isaiah chapter 53 tells us that Jesus was pierced for our rebellion, crushed for our iniquities. The punishment for our peace was placed upon him, and we're healed by his wounds. God's wrath against sinners was poured out on the man named Jesus. And for thousands of years, the Jews had been taking unleavened bread and breaking it as a remembrance of what God did for them. And Jesus takes this and he says, hey, hold up, let me show you something. That's actually a picture of what I have done for you. I'm starting a new covenant that's permanent. Now, look at the wine, 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Paul says, in the same way, Jesus took a cup after supper and he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. In the Jewish Passover, if you didn't know this, there were four different cups that they would use at this meal. The first cup was called the cup of sanctification. They would drink it. It was symbolic of the blood of the livestock that they put on their doorpost, Exodus 12, verse 22. Then the Jews, in preparation for the meal, would bring out a second cup, the cup of deliverance. This cup would set the stage for that unleavened bread that was about to be broken for them to eat. It was looking back on God delivering the Jews from Egypt. Then they would bring out a third cup, the cup of redemption. This cup was drank after their meal, again, remembering God redeeming the Jewish people. This is the cup we see in Luke 22 and 1 Corinthians chapter 11, that Jesus takes this cup of deliverance and he reminds them that there's a new covenant. As the writer of Hebrews said in Hebrews 9 verse 22, that without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sins, that we are forgiven because the sinless body of Jesus was broken and it bled and his blood covers our sin eternally, and he's the one that makes us right with God. It's the new cup, the new covenant that's permanent. Then they would bring out a fourth cup called the cup of celebration. It would be drank to close things out, and they would sing praises to God to close out the Passover meal, Mark 14, verse 26. You can see Jesus' disciples doing that with him. What was the point? Jesus takes this bread, he takes this wine, he says, the Jews have been doing this for thousands of years, looking back on God's deliverance, but it all pointed to me. It all pointed to Jesus. Now, I want you to think about this. When we come to this table, it could all be summed up in verse 26. Listen to what God's word says, verse 26. For as often as you eat this bread and you drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Scripture doesn't give us frequency on how often we do this together. It's not prescribed in the Bible. But Paul reminds us there in that verse that whenever we do this in the gathered local church, 
that we are saying to one another, I identify with Jesus. That we are proclaiming to one another in this moment that Jesus is my Savior and that I'm His. That He can do whatever He wants with me. We're reminding ourselves in that moment that we've been redeemed by the gospel. That Jesus intersected our story and we wholly belong to Him now. But guys, I want us to take some... I want to... Oh, goodness. I think too long we've stigmatized not taking the Lord's Supper in the gathered church. If, if you've got stuff that you just like, you need some time with the Lord, you're going to have a few minutes here in a moment, don't take this because you're concerned what the person next to you is going to think if you don't. Who gives a rip? Care more about what the eternal God thinks of you in this moment. And I'm not telling you to come to the table completely clean. That's not it. But if there's unrepentant sin in your life that you're just not willing to let go of yet, then you take this little cup and sit it in your pocket and say, Jesus, I'm just not there right now. But Lord, I want to talk to you about it for a few minutes. But if you do believe that you're in a position where you say, Lord, yeah, I've got some stuff, but God, we're... Lord, I, I acknowledge that and I'm dealing with God and we're working through that with the Lord and you feel like you can come to this, that's fine. But I hope we take heed today to Paul's stark warning for us. This is serious business in the kingdom. Super serious business. Let me pray for us. God, thank you again for your word, for the power of your word. God, I pray that in this moment as the gospel is on the front of our minds. God, as the gospel has been brought to the forefront of our thinking, that we would sing in response to that. That we would join the angels who are already singing to you. God, giving you the praise that only you deserve. God, we're very thankful. And it's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. Amen.